The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, familiar text for us. We'll talk about it again as we actually serve the elements. But listen, if you would, to the word of the Lord, the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, starting at verse number 23. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is a new testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest I will set in order when I come. May God bless the reading and proclamation of his word. In our church, what we focus on, what is the highlight of our gathering, is always the preaching of the word of God. There is nothing else. And maybe to help us understand that this morning, you should at least hear how the word describes itself. The word tells us that, It is a lamp that illuminates, Psalm 119. That in our lives, in our journey on this planet, the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is medicine that heals, that heals our hurts, our brokenness, and our sorrow, Proverbs chapter 4. It is a fire that refines and consumes and purifies the life of the believer. The same verse in Jeremiah 23 tells us that the word of God is a hammer and it breaks things in pieces like hard hearts are broken before the word. And then the Bible tells us that it is food that nourishes. Matthew 4, where Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it feeds us and it nourishes us. And then the Bible is rain and snow. Isaiah 55, that great portion that talks about the word of God going forth and not returning void, and it will accomplish what God wants. At the end, it talks about the rain that falls and the snow that falls, and it brings forth growth. And that's what the word of God does. It does it in our lives as believers. And so the word is important. And in preaching the word, all that preaching is is to endeavor to bring out what is there. You don't have to make things up. 
You don't have to be creative and say, boy, I'm going to try to find something in this book that is going to really get a hold of them. You don't have to do that. All we have to do is preach the word and say what it says and let it go. Just let it go. Right? It's been described as a lion. Don't cage it. Just let it go. And the word of God will do its work. And so this morning, I just want to endeavor to look at our text and to bring out what is already there. Okay? So, what is the design of the communion supper? What is this all designed to do? Well, the text tells us. It tells us two things. The first is, it's designed to help us remember and specifically remember his death. Now, you might that that's a strange thing to say, well, we need to remind people to remember the death of Christ. Why would we do that? Well, the answer is simple. Because our ungrateful hearts are prone to forget the richest mercies that we receive. And this happens all the time. I've been pastoring this church for this is we're going on our 18th year of being here. And I can tell you story after story of people who have come in and they said, we need help. And this church, as gracious as it is, has gathered around and helped and encouraged and blessed over and over again. And then after a while, it's not enough. It is not enough. I mean, you did it for for 10 years, but what about year 11? Or you did it in this area, but what about this? And they get upset and they leave. Why? Because they've forgotten the richest mercies that were shown. It happens all the time. It's happened to you, it's happened to me. And it happens in the Christian life. That we somehow are prone to forget the richest mercy that we have all experienced. And that is the death of death by the death of Christ. And so, the design of the Lord's Supper this morning for us is to remember And here's the procedure. He says, we take the bread and we take the cup to show his death. And think about this, because these elements are really, really simple. We take the bread. Right? It's just bread. But when we take this bread as believers... We're reminded of the body of Jesus Christ. We hold it. We touch it. We will partake of it in a spiritual sense as well. And there's no way around taking this bread and not remembering the body of Christ. As simple as this is, when we hold this as believers, we have to go back to Mount Calvary and think about the body of Jesus Christ. What is going on here with the body of Christ? Well, here's what happens. This body was spit upon. There are some degrading things that you can do to people. You ever been spit upon? It's degrading, man. It's just degrading. This body was spit upon. This body was smacked. Across the face, it was punched. This body had its beard plucked from his face. 
the bread reminds us. It reminds us that they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they didn't just gently place it upon his brow. They beat it upon his head with a rod. This body. He was pierced. He was scourged. His back looked like a farmer's field that had been plowed. This body. His hands. His feet. Pierced. And so, this morning, when we grab this bread... This simple procedure is so profound, how can we not think about the body? And then this. The cup. The blood. The blood that was shed for you and for me. Blood everywhere. His blood was shed. From his brow, from his face, from his back, from his hands, from his feet, the blood flowed. And again, how do we sit here as believers and take this cup and not think, my soul, this blood of Christ was shed for me. This is the procedure that Paul has Described because he got it from Christ himself. So, we see that. We understand that. But what's the point? I mean, we do this, and the text reminds us that the point is that this death was a death for sin. But not his sin. No. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God who knew no sin Neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was cursed and abused, he didn't answer again. He loved God perfectly and loved man perfectly. This death for sin was not his sin. This death for sin was your sin and my sin. I think the writer of Isaiah helps us understand the picture of Calvary and the torture of Christ. When we look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 7. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to read this together as a congregation, and as we read together to think about what we're saying, what we're reading, and what we're seeing in the text. So, if you would be so kind in a moment to join with me to read. If you can't read, then listen. Close your eyes and listen. But we'll read, not erase. I want to just rush through this. Stop at punctuation. Let's take our time, because the procedure is a bread and cup, but the point is this death for sin. And Isaiah describes it well. Isaiah 53, 4, together please. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. That's the point, that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Not his sin, our sin. And understanding this brings us from the procedure to the point to the propitiation. What this accomplishes for you and for me this morning. Our church has been so kind almost to adopt uh, the little babies in our church who have suffered. Ainsley is here this morning. We've prayed for her for a long time, since I think October or so of last year. At the same time, baby Colette was going through similar surgeries with, with her for brain uh, cancer, this tumor. And last week, they did the surgery again on baby Colette, and, and it was successful. We praise God for it. But Colleen, the grandmother, sent us a post, a picture of this little, tiny, beautiful one-year-old girl with a scar in the back of her head. And here's what she wrote underneath the picture. The wound that brought healing. The wound that brought healing. It struck me in a different way this time. Because as as soon as I heard that, my mind went back to Isaiah. By his stripes, you are healed. It is in the wounding of the Son, this death that brings healing to you and to me. The word propitiation means God's wrath has been satisfied. His holy law, his holy requirements, what he requires, not what the church requires, not what religion requires, not what you require in your good works and your social work. What he requires is justice. The guilty soul must die. The wages of sin is death. No one gets out of that. The truth is, the mortality rate is 100%. 10 out of 10 people will die. There's no escaping. You will not get off this planet alive. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Someone had to die. The innocent stepped in for the guilty. And on Calvary's brow, Jesus Christ the perfect spotless Lamb of God, shed His blood so that you and so that I could be redeemed and purchased and rescued and ransomed. We avoid divine retribution because of the sacrifice of Christ. This is what it means to remember. Remember. We take the bread. We take the cup. We remember. The point is His death. But don't stop there. This death gives us life today. And it's something that we ought to remember and rejoice in. Amen? Amen. The text tells us to remember. Number two, it tells us to examine. The truth is, Scripture encourages us to examine. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. And we need to. We don't do this enough. We're really good at examining other people. It's my brother, it's my mother, it's my sister, it's the guy next to me, right? But rarely do we examine ourselves. Uh, unless we're comparing. I just saw something this week that said, uh, comparison is the robber of joy. The internet, Facebook, your tweets. 
comparing is a robber of joy. And I would say to you that the comparing in which we do with other people um, is elevating of ourself. And the Bible says clearly, examine yourself. Why? Because you and I, as human beings, are really good at deceiving ourselves. We do a really good job at puffing ourselves up and taking the worst guy or the worst girl or the weakest Christian and say, I'm not so bad. That's not what this is about. This is about self-examination. And so, let's just take some time this morning to examine ourselves. From the last time that we had communion, and I'm not talking about at the end of the year, No, no, last month, since the last time we have taken communion, have we gained ground spiritually? And this is not for the guy sitting next to you or the woman sitting next to you or your parents or your children. It's for you. It's for me. As I approach this table, as I take time to remember and now examine myself, am I gaining ground spiritually? Or am I just going on through life month after month after month? Are our corruptions growing weaker and our graces growing stronger? Would you be known as a person of grace? Has the grace in your life increased since last month? Have you been more successful at striving against your besetting sin? And and listen... Your sin is not my sin. I got my own list. You got your list. And you know there are sins that they they just, it seems like all the time they're there or they hold us and they grab us and we find ourselves back there. And the question is, after the last time we were together, are you seeing victory in those areas of gossip? Which is not a gift. Of bitterness. Of anger of lust, of greed, of selfishness, and and the list goes on. Are we seeing victory? Are we seeing obedience since last month? And listen, it's not okay. You know, there's a song, it's okay not to be okay. Great, whatever. It's not okay to be okay when we're sinning against God. It's just not. That's just the way I am. That's the problem. That's your problem. That's my problem. That's the way I am. That's my natural bent. That's my flesh. God saved you to change you. God saved you to transform you. And this is a gauge as we examine ourselves. How have we been doing? Is there conformity to the image of Christ in your life? And is it visible? Since last month. Or let's just take last year for this one. Is there conformity to the person of Christ in your life? You say, well, God knows. Yeah, thanks, Captain Obvious. Of course he knows. He knows everything. Does your spouse know? If there's conformity to Christ in your life, a gentleness, a sweetness, a grace, do your kids know? Do your grandkids know? Do your parents know? Do your neighbors know? Do your coworkers know? Is there a love growing to all men since last time we met? And by all men, I don't mean your posse and your circle. 
and the people you're real comfortable with. I'm talking about all men, all women. Let's just take our church, this body. Is your love growing for people in this body? Well, I don't know. You know how sister so-and-so is. Yeah, I've had her in my office several times. I know how she is. You know how, brother, you know about, yeah, I do know. But let me ask you this. How in the world do you learn to love people who are just like you? The beauty of the church is we take people from every walk of life that we would never have anything in common with. Oh, I just remember what I was supposed to say in that announcement. Yeah. This is going to connect, actually. No, it won't, but I'm just going to say it anyways. Um, I have to apologize to our farmers because last week I said that mangers are dirty, and I had a whole group of farmers come up to me and said, mangers aren't dirty, you don't know what you're talking about. Not like that, but they were, right? And so, mangers are not dirty, but being born around a manger with farm animals in the first century is not the ideal situation. Okay? Does that make sense? For, does that satisfy our farmer ladies and men? All right. Thank you. They asked a great theologian. What will it be about heaven that surprises you most? He said that he would even love me. That he would even love me. In my rebellion, in my disobedience, in my inconsistencies, in my indifference, why would you love me? In my weakness, in my shame, he does. It's especially important in communion to remember because we come into his presence in the sweet communion of Christ this morning. And you know, there, there's something about this service, and I'm not trying to be mystical, but when you exalt Christ, there's a sweetness in that. There's a beauty in that. And there's a glory in that. And our affections should be engaged, so much so that we long to be right with God and right with one another. Right? So we come to remember, we come to examine. And listen to me, this examination, um, two ideas. The first is, if we examine ourselves honestly before here, we can have thanksgiving to say, God, I'm not perfect. But since last month, you know, I've noticed that this besetting sin, I've had victory in this. I've noticed there have been evidences of your grace in my life. I've noticed that you are doing a work in me, and I sense it, and I feel it. And so I come with the bread and the cup, and I say, God, thank you. Like Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in a future world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So we can have thanksgiving through this examination. Or we can turn. There can be a turning with examination. If you come before the table this morning and say, you know what, since last month, God, I've blown it. I don't know what I've been doing for the last 30 days. Well, here's the grace of God. Stop. (laughs) Stop it. Repent. Ask forgiveness and get back up again. God doesn't want to hold you down under his thumb. He knows our weakness. He knows our humanity. He knows our frailty. And by his grace, he says, yes, you have sinned. Yes, you've blown it. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, if you've blown it as we come to this table and you've examined yourself, maybe it's not Thanksgiving this month. Maybe it's turning. But they're both good things. They're both good things. So, 
The design of communion is to remember, it's to examine, but listen to me, in this examination and in this remembering, it has a shelf life. He says, do this till I come. Till I come. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will rescue, he will reign, he will rule, and he will make all of this right. And in that day, I will not have to worry about taking communion and these symbols of the body and the blood of Christ. Because in that day, I will see him face to face. Face to face with my Savior. This is the design of communion. It is simple, and yet it is profound. In Dickens' great classic, The Tale of Two Cities, he talks about the difference between Paris and London. And I don't want to spoil the story. If you've never read it, you ought to read it, but I'm going to spoil it for you this morning and give you the end. There's so much that happens in this book. There's a lawyer who's sort of washed up. His name is Sidney Carton. Alcohol has destroyed his life, but he's a brilliant man. And he's sitting in a case one day, and the man on trial is a Frenchman who's been accused of a crime. And Carton says very little until toward the end of the case, and he tells his, the actual main lawyer, hey, tell the judge, can you see the resemblance between the two of us, how uncanny it is? And so it was true. Carton looked just like this Frenchman named Charles Darnay. And because of that, he got him off of the sentence. So in the process of the book, as it unfolds, there's a woman named Lucy that they both fall in love with, a beautiful woman. But Carton understands that because of his past and who he is, he has no chance. And so instead, what he does is he then pledges his life for Lucy's happiness and for all those that she loves. For the end of the story, Charles Darnay, who Lucy loves and will marry, goes back to Paris. He's captured and he's sentenced to lose his life. It's during the Revolution. He will be beheaded. And Carton hears this. And so he goes to Paris, and he goes to see Charles Darnay, and when he does, he sort of drugs him, and he changes clothes with him. Carton stays in the cell, and Darnay escapes from the cell. And so... Darnay and Lucy drive away, and Carton is left there to die on the gallows and lose his head. And Dickens says something fascinating here. At the end of the book, he allows Carton to speak from the gallow as he's thinking about the future. And here's what he says. I see the life for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy, in that England which I shall not see, Again, I see her with a child upon her bosom who bears my name. I see that I hold a sanctuary in all their hearts and the hearts of their descendants generations hence. I see her, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her and her husband, their course done, lying side by side in their last earthly bed. And I know that each was not more honored and held sacred in the other's soul than I was in the souls of both of them. That phrase, I hold a sanctuary in their hearts. And the point is this. It is a great thing, a very great thing, to have someone die for you. That's the point. 
And Cardin sees a future where these two people and their descendants hold a sanctuary in their hearts. My friend, this morning, someone has died for you. Someone of infinite value and worth shed his life's blood so that you and I could be rescued from the prison of sin, death, darkness, and damnation. And while he went to the cross, we went free. And so, does it not make sense that there should be a sanctuary in all of our hearts for the one who died for us? And that's what this is about this morning. I love him. Because greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so, this morning, if you're here without Christ, let me encourage you. Let the bread and let the cup pass. Let it pass. And instead, this morning, make a sanctuary in your heart. Repent and believe and come to Christ. Do it in your seats. Do it here. Do it now. You know the gospel. You know the truth. You've heard it. If that's the case, today, understand that he is worthy because he died for you. And for those of us who know him, maybe once again, come to this table with gratitude, thanksgiving, and a sanctuary in our hearts as we remember and examine this morning. Other men, join me now as we prepare to serve the Lord's table.